Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Sage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we're talking with David Bonson, author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Ron, it's going great. I cannot wait for this conversation. This is going to be so much fun. Me too. I've been a big fan of David's for a long time. Let me read his bio real quick. David Bonson is the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group, managing over $3 billion of client capital. He is annually recognized as one of the top wealth advisors in the country by Barron's Forbes and Financial Times, author of the weekly invest- investment commentary, DividendCafe.com as well as the daily economic bulletin, the DCToday.com, and host the weekly Capital Record podcast at National Review, which is just fantastic. David and his wife of 20 years, Jolene, live bi-coastally in Newport Beach, California, and New York City. They have three children. In his spare time, he enjoys reading, writing, and USC football. David Bonson, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Well, thanks so much. It's wonderful to be with you. You, you picked two expensive states. David, mm-hmm. uh, split your time between. <laughs> I did. And, and they're not just expensive for uh, taxation and regulation, but also just general cost of living. And so uh, similar to the title of my book, There's No Free Lunch and the reinforcement of my belief in trade-offs, I most certainly have to accept a big trade-off for me to enjoy New York dining the way that I do. <laughs> well, Ed and I were just in New, Newport Beach last month, and it's a beautiful place, so I can understand the attraction. Uh, speaking of your book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, which was published last year. I, you know, I have to say, Ed and I are kind of Austrian, heavily influenced uh, economic thinkers, and so your book for us was like preaching to the choir. Um Why'd you write it, David? And why'd you write it when you did? Well, I um, feel very strongly about the answer to this question, which is that we may or may not have a lot of people in our world that have an instinct towards free markets. I believe we do. That's been my experience uh, as an American uh, in my adult life. Uh, surrounded primarily in the business community, um, but even just in observations of the culture at large and in my study of what is unique about the American DNA, there's a whole lot of problems, but I think we do, as a predominant theme in society, favor risk takers and entrepreneurialism, and there's a huge history to the kind of individualism of the American experiment that plays well into the notion of a form of market economy. And yet, uh, and this is the answer to your question, I don't believe that much of that DNA 
uh, much of that impulse, if you will, has been rooted in a real foundational understanding of a market economy. I don't think it's been rooted in first things, first principles. And so my point in the book was to make the uh, claim that uh, kind of revisiting some of the foundational truths of economics, not just what we believe, not just why we like the way some of these things play out, but revisiting um, why we believe it. It will be necessary in the years ahead, not only because of Bernie Sanders and AOC, not only because all these young people are going socialist, not only because college professors have uh, totally rejected the notion of free enterprise, but because even on the right, there is lacking a foundation in a market economy and a free society, there is vulnerability. There are folks who are very easily uh, prone to abandon the belief system that I hold dear uh, at various moments of pragmatic convenience. And that's what I desperately want us to avoid. I want us to get armored up, ready for the ideological battle that lies ahead. And I hope that the book and in its uh, reverence to the masters and the great economic teachers of old will help us find some of those foundational wisdoms. That's awesome. You know, Deirdre uh, basically warned of the same thing when we talked to her about how we could lose all this, you know, and it, it, I mean, look at Venezuela, look at other countries, we can lose our liberty and our free and our free markets. And yeah, it's a real scary thought. You kind of start out and I and I love it because this is Ludwig von Mises, but you you kind of study economics the way he did. You start with human action and David, explain that um, as opposed to say people talk about human behavior, but pets behave, animals behave, humans act with purpose. So what do you mean by human action? Well, there's another distinction between the animal kingdom and um, the human race. And when we talk about human action, um, and that is dignity. I believe that mankind is uniquely created with dignity as an image bearer of God. And so the Austrian praxeology that I hold dear and believe is so fundamentally um, needed in our understanding of economics, both behavior, reasoning, policymaking, application, all of the above, uh, von Mises was the master in uh, pointing our eyes to the notion of the human activity that drives economic um, reality. And yet, I believe that the anthropology, that the, the nature of the human person, the reality of the human person, was very sadly lacking, even in uh, the wisdom of von Mises and economics. And what I'm trying to do is not merely be satisfied with the Austrian truism that economics is the study of human action around the allocation of scarce resources, but rather dive deeper into what that means. And what it means is that the human person has unique faculties, and you hit on some of them. They act with purpose, but they act with purpose because they were created to do so. They were created for what? 
to cultivate, steward, grow the earth. They were given domain and dominion and responsibility over the creation to extract potential from the material world. And so as Thomas Sowell is well known for saying, there has been no new raw material created. All we have done is impute ideas, unique human faculties, reason, logic, innovation, creativity, and ultimately production. We have produced. This is something that only the human race can do because only the human race was made with these characteristics that we share with our creator. And so because our creator was creative, innovative, and productive, so too ought we to be. Yes, that's wonderful. Yeah, I love Soul's line about the caveman have the same resources as we do today, but didn't have the knowledge and the creativity and innovation that we've built on over the decades. Um, you also say that human flourishing is, is the reason why you study economics. How do you define human flourishing? As the material and spiritual abundance, joy, peace, and harmony. That is our aim. So I seek to synthesize in my definition of human flourishing, the two dimensions of mankind. My definition of human flourishing has a physical component and a spiritual component because mankind has a both material and immaterial dimension to him or her. So if I could give somebody food, water, and shelter and deprive them of peace and joy and happiness and harmony and achievement and fulfillment, I don't think I would have produced a flourishing in their spirit and in their ethos. And likewise, if somebody can wake up with a very positive disposition and have a certain degree of general contentment, but then lacks basic human needs, food, shelter, water, um, there, there is a constant tension and um, pressure that, that will never be alleviated in their quest for flourishing. So the juxtaposition of the physical dimension, the material dimension, if you will, and the immaterial, the spiritual, if you will, uh, I define it in the context of an abundance, joy, peace, and harmony in those two dimensions that harmonization represents, I think, a holistic definition of human flourishing. Excellent. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You also say acceptance of imperfectibility is vital if we are to flourish. Utopia is not the goal. Yeah, well, I mean, this is uh, sort of sad, isn't it, that we have to say this in 2022 <laughs> and when I wrote the book in 2021 um, I think that, that God put the 20th century into history so that we would know it forever and never have to revisit it. But the, the Marxian quest for utopia was a really bloody quest, and it didn't end um, very well. And last I checked, it didn't end in utopia. But even apart from the sort of prophetic nature of Marxism, which really is a historical view of reality, um, and, and therefore ought to be critiqued as such. But I think that in the specific dimension of economic theory, that the progressives 
and the socialists and the central planners are all guilty to one degree or another of um, critiquing economic theory and policy that fails to create utopia as if utopia is um, possible. And so this sort of nirvana myth um, enables sound policy to be rejected in pursuit of more unsound policy simply because one is um, aiming for this utopian objective while the other admits and accepts its uh, Im impossibility. Soul, in a more political philosophy context, referred to this conflict of visions as the constrained versus the unconstrained vision. And all I'm really doing here is taking Soul's doctrine of vision conflict and applying it to um, economics. Utopianism is impossible on this side of glory. And so when we uh, look at some of the outcomes that cannot be perfected in a market economy and treat those things as an indictment of the market system, we essentially deprive ourselves of the wonderful outcomes a market economy can produce. And to the extent that market defenders like you and I are challenged by the idea that it doesn't create utopia, our response has got to be for the sake of logical coherence and advancement of civilization, our response has got to be guilty as charged. We agree a market economy cannot create utopia. And um, I think that by arguing within that paradigm, we do great um, uh, good for the cause of human civilization. Right. No, couldn't agree more. I think that's one of the soul's finest works, the conflict divisions. I just absolutely love that. Well, David, this is just flying by. We knew it would. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Also, check out our Patreon uh, channel where you can subscribe, patreon.com slash TSOE. That channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. More minds meld at 90 Minds. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now, a word from our new sponsor, Melio. Accountants and bookkeepers, listen up. Save time by streamlining your customers' payables with Melio. Melio lets you make all your customers' business payments on one simple dashboard. There's no monthly fees, and you can send ACH transfers for free. Best of all, Melio syncs with your accounting software, so everything is organized. Do yourself and your customers a favor. Join Melio so you can spend less time on payments and more time growing your firm. Visit melio.com slash accountants for more information. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. 
Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh, oh my fraud. fraud. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with David Bonson on the Soul of Enterprise. And we are, in to give a little bit of inside baseball, pre-recording this episode, uh, I am away at a baseball tournament with my son in Houston and don't have the best internet connection, but I'm going to quickly turn on my video so that David can see this and pan over to my son, who is currently reading your book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he 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 had to read a, a fiction book and a nonfiction book for as part of his spring break and um i kind of suggested that this would be a good one <laughs> so, well he can so, read uh, he can read my book for nonfiction, and then he can read paul krugman for his fiction book <laughs> <laughs> oh perfect perfect but uh and that book was signed david by you at at a recent NRI event that you you came in and spoke at here in Dallas. And you used a phrase during your presentation that I want you to, to share with our audience, fatal concessions, the fatal concessions. Yeah. What, 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 what's the fatal concessions? Well, when, when obviously I'm, I'm borrowing the language of Friedrich Hayek about the fatal conceit, and it is essentially um, a broad expression uh, for the indictment of central planning. And both Hayek and Sol use different vocabulary to describe the same problem philosophically, which is the knowledge problem. The belief that um, the central planner can effectively have the knowledge and optics and visibility even apart from the incentives problem that most classical and supply side economists have focused on, that um, the fatal conceit is the notion that they uh, would be able to steward the affairs of society despite the wide dispersion of knowledge in society, which makes such impossible. Hayek, in his masterful essay, The Use of Knowledge in Society, talked about time and place circumstances. 
that um, central planners lack any sort of time and place context as far as how decisions are made around production and consumption, allocation of resources, um, the kind of individual risk-taking decisions, there is a proximity that is required. And that's where I think the synonym soul like to use was optics. There's, there's an optics one gets from proximity. Why we, this is sort of almost theologically tied into the Catholic notion of subsidiarity. By being proximate to circumstances in our everyday endeavors, in the way we steward our families, in the way we run our businesses, we have um, a knowledge that enables us to make better decisions in the central planner. And the fatal conceit of central planners is that they cannot have that knowledge. Now, I would argue that in price discovery, and this is the Hayekian notion, that we solve for the wide dispersion of knowledge through price discovery. And again, because like as we talked about in the last segment, we reject utopianism. It need not be perfect, but we can get a uh, imperfect signal of information and prices. Well, central planning distorts price discovery. It impedes price discovery. And so I think that there is a broad critique available to the entire concept, um, even before we get to the real death blow, um, which is incentives, the lack of skin in the game. But ultimately, I think that Hayek was right, that the complex nature of knowledge's dispersion in society requires the opposite of centralization of power. It requires the diffusion of authority that only markets provide. And uh, interesting, I, I was listening to an interview you did with uh, your friend Jonah Goldberg, and he he pointed out to you, and I think this is uh, so important, that this works both ways for both conservatives and uh, progressives, because it seems that a lot of people on the Republican side think that they can control it from the top down as well now, too. Maybe less so than than progressives, but there's still this fatal conceit that that you know top-down planning works oh i i agree completely and i think i do recall that conversation with jonah i think um there is a really strong remnant of those on the right uh father sirico devoted a significant amount of time at his own um retirement dinner address at the uh, acton institute symposium dinner last year to critique this sort of new right aspiration that we maintain totally different goals from those goals that the left and the progressives have yet uh, embrace the same tactics, meaning the use of power and the use of central authority to go about um, uh, implementing our desired aims. And I stand with uh, Jonah and Father Sirico and of course the American founders in rejecting the um, means, uh, regardless of the end. I do not believe that we can effectively utilize this central, top-down, um, authoritative excess as a means to achieving anything that remotely resembles freedom or virtue. And so in this sense, I'm a critic of both the left and many on the so-called new integralist right. 
Yeah. And it's even unfortunately worked its way down to the state level. I live in Texas and, you know, the Republicans think that they can control schools on on the other side. And instead of fighting for school choice, they're fighting for imposition of what they think should be taught in schools. Crazy. That's right. Where, of course, the um, Republican agenda there that our kids not be taught critical race theory or or Marxian oppression as a sort of religious tenant, you know, these things can all be achieved um, without sacrificing subsidiarity, localism, school parental, you know, control, the very school choice, all the things we've been fighting for and talking about and advocating for decades. And yet I think that a lot of it is rooted in frustration. There's sort of a temper tantrum um, that, you know, the classical liberal order is not getting us what we want quickly enough. And so we're willing to throw out some principles to accelerate that outcome. I think it's a terrible idea. Couldn't agree more. Uh, turning your attention to, to something that I've, I've heard you talk about as well. Um, it, and it, what happened with the situation with COVID? Is there is there anything comparable in history in your mind to the the shuttering of the economy that we did during the COVID panic? And if so, can we learn from that, or are we in completely uncharted waters here? Oh no, it's not. It, there, there is a lot of precedent we can learn from, but some of it is actually positive. Um, we can learn from you know the the fact that we did it differently in the past and got better outcomes. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is that there are circumstantial uniqueness in the in the um, COVID moment, most of which are really overwhelmingly positive that would have argued for less lockdowns, less intervention. Things like um, the fact that this was a very, very, very low fatality disease relative to infection. More importantly, that it was incredibly, almost almost exclusively non-fatal, apart from a horrifically uh, complex comorbidity with young people, with infants, with toddlers, with children. That alone made it categorically different on both a moral and medical plane to the Spanish flu of 1918. Um, so at the end of the day, I would accept that there could very well early on have been a period of time where we didn't know what we didn't know and various um, you know, things being thrown at the wall may have had good intent, but no, I don't think you can accept after a certain period of time where there was stark clarity about um, the ineffectiveness of lockdowns, um, about the growing public distrust with some of the frequently repeated errors from federal health bureaucrats, um, and in an era, you got to remember, we were going into COVID with a really severe decline in public trust in institutions. And I do not see that as a good thing. And so to come out of it with public trust in institutions far more bruised and battered than it was going in is totally inexcusable. So that's my comment on the cultural side and then the response to the 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 um, policymaking from CDC and, and Washington's interventions, and not to mention some of the more egregious and excessive state and local interventions. But then you have to look to the um, economic response, which was essentially, um, let's go drop a huge spending and debt bomb, and then let's do it again, and then let's do it again. And at the risk of offending people on 
the side of the partisan divide that I generally would identify with. I do want to point out that the 1.9 trillion Biden bill passed in March or April of 2021 was especially egregious and unnecessary and, and problematic, but it was the third. There had already been about a $900 billion one passed just a few months before and a over $2 trillion one passed at the height of the pandemic. So this is a very, very, very bipartisan acceptance of $5 billion, excuse me, $5 trillion of, of spending um, that we didn't have. Now, the, this wasn't the first time the Federal Reserve decided to jump in aggressively, but it was the second time. Um, the, the financial crisis uh, teed up a precedent. Um, it was kind of medium on the Keynesian side, much like the COVID side was. They, it, very rarely did they refer to some of those things as stimulus driven. Like the PPP thing, trying to give money to businesses, that was more to offset like we closed your business, now we're going to give you money to help you reopen later. That's different than the old digging a ditch just to get some activity going. Um, that's different than the Obama Summers uh, Keynesian package of 2009. Let's go fix up freeways, you know, kind of New Dealism. Um, we were essentially, a lot of the spending was targeted just because of the damage they had inflicted. But on the Fed side, both post-08 and post-COVID, ZERP, which zero interest rate policy, QE, quantitative easing, which is essentially bond buying and using the Fed balance sheet as a mechanism for manipulating monetary policy. But then these special conventions, the alphabet soup, of we're going to intervene and start what TALF and TALF2 and... Um, there are so many of these that got created to help facilitate money market transactions, municipal bond operations, purchasing junk bonds on and, and junk bond ETFs on the Fed's balance sheet. These things are, are really new conventions. And I would argue that we did it um, so easily post COVID because there was no ideological pushback post-financial crisis. There was absolutely nobody on the right making the claim that some of the things may have been good and necessary, but some of them were excessive and interventionist. And there was no attempt to kind of audit what happened post-crisis. And I think now, had the Fed not done it post-COVID, people would have been livid like, why isn't the Fed taking this more aggressive posture? I don't think this is bailing out Wall Street. This is Main Street just expecting that there's someone with their hands on a magical lever that can kind of keep the economy in a certain form of equilibrium. And it's probably the thing I'm most concerned about when I look forward to the next 10, 20, 30 years of economic life, that we have deified the Fed in a very nonpartisan way and in a very dangerous way. Well, David, I just love the way that you explained this, but we've got to take time to pay our bills. So we'll take our break now. I want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. You can get a shout out if you join our Patreon channel at a certain level. And the shout out this time goes to Blake Oliver at Earmark CPA, CPE. You can get him at earmarkcpe.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors.
Sage knows how hard it can be for accountants to form a game plan to develop and launch new services to clients. To solve this, Sage partnered with industry leader Boomer Consulting to build the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Services Program. This program guides you at your own pace to create a clear and concise strategy for increasing value and profitability by providing higher value services to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Accountants and bookkeepers, listen up. Save time by streamlining your customers' payables with Melio. Melio lets you make all your customers' business payments on one simple dashboard. There's no monthly fees, and you can send ACH transfers for free. Best of all, Melio syncs with your accounting software, so everything is organized. Do yourself and your customers a favor. Join Melio so you can spend less time on payments and more time growing your firm. Visit melio.com accountants for more information. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with David Bonson and discussing his book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, which I can't uh, recommend enough. It's a fantastic book. I just love the way you structured it, David. You give quotes from all these great thinkers, and then you add your commentary. And I thought your commentary was absolutely profound, too. So maybe we'll get Sean, Ed's son, to write a, a review after he reads it. But um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you you, you have one of my favorite quotes from uh, Thomas uh, Babington uh, Macaulay. And I'm just going to read the last sentence. On what principle is it that with nothing but improvement behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us. And boy, do we see this with, I mean, we've taken how many people, a billion people out of bone crushing poverty. And now we're arguing for zero fossil fuels in 10 years or 20 years. I, I'm in the middle of reading Fossil Future by Alex Epstein. Mm-hmm. How do you think about climate change and zero fossil fuels and all of that? Yeah, so I, there's both the kind of pragmatic dimension, which is what's the best way to make the case and, and to kind of incrementally function within the competing objectives. And then there's the uh, ideological um, argument, which I think forces us to, to revisit trade-offs and, and, and other things. Um, I'm 100% on Epstein's side about the moral case for fossil fuels. Um, if we want to talk about where... Um, some limited carbonization or lower carbon emissions from fossil fuels would be a, a good and necessary thing for long-term health in the um, climate. I'm very open to that argument. 
But what I think really screws us up every time is starting off back to this utopian fallacy, starting off with the idea that we even could, if we wanted to, go to zero fossil. Um, it's just a simply ridiculous argument. And the uh, damage that would be done primarily, by the way, to poor people um, in, in their well-being and health and quality of life is staggering. So I am of the opinion that we ought to take seriously the idea of limiting carbon emissions. And then I happen to believe we have a great way to do that. And that a lot of that can even come through fossil fuel. And that is, of course, continuing ongoing improved technology and, and progress with the very nature of crude oil extraction and delivery itself, but then also the replacement of dirtier fuel with natural gas. I would take the left more seriously on their aspirations for lower carbon if they were all pro-natural gas fanatics, but they're not. Now you can also throw in nuclear as well, but admittedly that I, I, we, we have a, a pretty long timeline to get to be, have greater nuclear since we haven't done anything with it for a gazillion years. But natty gas, we could do it. We, we have the ability um, to substantially change the way we power electricity. And we have, natural gas does now outrank coal in the, in the um, way in which we're powering electricity and yet uh, most uh, today's modern environmental religion is opposed to natural gas, which I find simply dumbfounding. So that's sort of my general take. And if there's something more specific you're looking for, I'm happy to go there. But that's where I come in on the climate side and, and believe that we can, in this case, use markets, use innovations, and still maintain some honesty and integrity in the way we dialogue about the present ecological um, tension. Are you optimistic with respect to getting the other side out, people like Beyond Lomborg and, and Alex Epstein and others that have written about the real science? Because it seems like the narrative, what, what Epstein calls the knowledge system, just catastrophizes everything. Well, I think that um, what we saw, uh, this is a different scale that we're experiencing this uh, catastrophism in now. In the past, um, the, what generally changed the narrative was the false prophecy realization. So when someone says the whole world we're, is going to starve to death or we're going to be overpopulated by 1970 and then we're not, um, those people have a way of being marginalized through time. We're now getting to the point where some of the early um, modern environmental extremist predictions have their due date. And so some of the old uh, Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore stuff, some of the even prophecies from AOC, she dared to put a timeline on some of her things. Um, I think that we need to, to advertise how ineffective their timelines have been and how uh, polar opposite of reality they've proven to be. But what I don't think we need to do is push back on the idea that there is no environmental objective here. I think that we, if we want to market ourselves as being pro-pollution or being anti-ozone layer, um, I don't think that's effective. What, what I think we can argue we are for is effective ways of stewarding the earth and then make the facts-based case that Epstein and others make 
um, and and allow for the in, use of fossil in that uh, endeavor. Right. Yeah, I think one of the reasons it's probably resonating with me so much is because of his take on human flourishing. Yeah, that's the perspective he comes at it. Um, along those lines, David, I know you're you're a great market watcher. And what do you think about this ESG movement? We, we've done some shows on it. Uh, we did a show on uh, by Vag, uh Ramaswamy's book, Woke Inc. Um, what's your take on ESG? Well, no, I think it's fundamentally a scam. Um, before ESG was sort of identifiable as a movement and as a, a political orthodoxy, and even for real believers as a religion, I think it was a marketing scam and Wall Street uh, tapped into it with great effect, uh, raised a lot of money by putting a sort of virtue signaling stamp of approval on top of a basket of stocks and other portfolio managers could claim certain overlays and processes and things like that to help attract more institutional money from other virtue signaling Pharisees. But at the end of the day, um, I've made this point now for a couple of years as someone inside the markets who, who manages billions of dollars of client capital day in and day out. I believe ESG benefited from the coincidence of timing early on where cyclically we happen to be entering into a period where uh, certain technology stocks and areas, IT, software, social media, uh, particularly cloud-based, um, but to a smaller degree, e-commerce, streaming. There was a just huge benefit in something that was for, because of carbon-related matters, um, highly rated in ESG. And then at the same time, the stuff that was being, the real define, defining uh, characteristic of ESG investing is being anti-fossil. So just by simply not being in oil and gas. And from 2014 through 2020, you had a period of, of real lagging performance of the energy sector. And so everyone could then say, not as ESG was exploding in popularity and you outperform. We'll see all of that has now changed and changed violently. Energy has been the top performing sector for 18 months now. Um, the big bubble that existed in some of these hot tech, cool tech type companies has blown up spectacularly. And I simply do not believe our markets, our economy, investors, either institutional or private, will tolerate a concept of ESG that is accompanied by substantial and sustained underperformance, which it most certainly is and will be. Uh, ESG is rooted in a false idea that there is a fiduciary duty that is primary to someone other than the equity shareholder. It is untrue and it is unnecessary for in being faithful to a fiduciary duty equity shareholder, you inevitably must care deeply for your laborers, your vendors, your suppliers and other stakeholders in your community. So they created a false dilemma and ran with it and used every bit of power and manipulation in their toolbox to do so. And I await uh, the spectacular death of ESG. It can't come soon enough. Amen. Uh, are you worried about outfits like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard that use their power and influence with these passive index funds and then they pretend to speak for the investors? and influence company policy? 
Well, the, the answer is both yes and no. I'm not as worried as many of my friends and colleagues and, and others may be that read some of the headlines here and may not fully understand all the process. I don't fundamentally agree that the proxy voting should default to someone who is not the beneficial owner of the underlying company. So I would not mind a revisiting of how proxy voting is treated when for the shares that are owned by um, exchange traded funds. But again, the customer still has power here and they're not using it. Those of us who own stocks individually away from BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard, we're not voting our shares where less than 1% of votes are being returned. So my friend Jerry Boyer and I are really working hard on where we can drive greater shareholder engagement from those of us that don't want to see the woke left and ESG movement and so forth take over this narrative. Right now, there's a legal challenge because BlackRock has the power to do so. But what BlackRock couldn't do is do the, that if their shareholders would revolt against it. There's still a market mechanism available to fight back here. And are they powerful and entrenched? Well, sure they are. But I mean, everybody's all that we've been dealing with powerful and entrenched bad guys for a long time. I think we're better than that. Awesome. Well, David, this has been an absolute honor to talk to you. I was a big, big fan of your work and uh, really enjoyed the book. And hopefully we'll uh, add to your Amazon ranking as a result of this. But thank you so much. Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at parasage.com. Go out to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE and give us a rating. And we'll, we will read it on the air. And now we want to hear from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh, oh my fraud. fraud.
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back on The Soul of Enterprise with David Bonson. David, I want to pick up on something from the previous segments uh, with regard to the the debt that we have uh, incurred. Uh, Mike Munger, a previous guest on, on this show, has a great saying that debts are future taxes. And uh, I, I think he's spot on with that. Is are you you concerned with the with the long term with regard to that? The only way to pay back this debt is to incur this massive tax burden. Well, unfortunately, um, there, there's even more complexity in it that I think makes it worse. I mean, all debt is paid for by, uh, well, first of all, all government spending is paid for by either current taxes, an extraction from the private sector, or debt, which is future taxes, a future extraction from the private sector. What is different about current um, spending that represents taxation and extraction from private sector and from an optimal allocation of resources. What is even worse about debt versus current excessive spending is then it it gets priced into markets. It gets priced into producer behavior. We we, um, have a drag on future economic growth because we know of the debt overhang. And I think that factor is essentially treated in the developed world um, by the process of Japanification, hyper fiscal stimulus. Uh, the problem of debt is treated with more debt, hair of the dog economics, and then with monetary interventions that are wildly creative and aggressive, both of which puts downward pressure on economic growth. And we have been living in this in our own country for quite some time. Uh, Japan has been living in it for three decades. Luckily, we live in it to a lesser degree than Japan does because we're more productive. We have more immigration. We have more population, population growth. Um, But Europe, Japan, UK, and US are all in the same boat. Excessive indebtedness is a uh, future tax, but it is worse than that. It is a future reduction of economic growth. And as uh, I think Russ Roberts is, is wont to say, the difference between 1% economic growth and 2% economic growth is not 1%. <laughs> well, that's good math. Yeah, that is correct. <laughs> that is a massive difference. And then when you apply it to the denominator, you know, we, we can use real life percentages. We're at 1.6% real GDP growth in our country annualized since 2008. Since World War II, up until 2008, we were at 3.1%. So we have cut our annual growth rate in half. There was one year during the Trump administration, the year after the initial corporate tax reform, where we did experience 3% real GDP growth. But throughout all of the um, years that were following the financial crisis, normally you'd get 4 5 6% recovery as you come out of a a real recession period, we really never got anything going there. And I'm not going to call it the Obama years because I don't like the cause and effect of assuming anything good happens happens because of who's president and anything bad happens happens because who's president. There's always presidential policy impact. But my point is we are living in a period of stagnant economic growth and now we've had both Republican and Democrat presidents in there. 
and the debt to GDP went from 10 trillion to 30 trillion. And so do I thought we're supposed to get a multiplier effect from tripling the national debt. Uh, we, we are getting a negative multiplier and we have a history book to read on this and it's called Japan. One of the things I think I've heard you said, and I, and I perhaps I don't understand this, but you said that inflation is a is less of a problem than deflation, but be, but for the same reasons. Is that do I have that right? Uh, that's why well, I certainly believe deflation is a bigger problem than inflation. Yes, but as far as for the same reasons, that's likely a reference to the fact that people are referring to excessive government spending and excessive monetary policy as a cause of inflation. And it does that cyclically all the time. You get too much money chasing too few goods. Um, you get uh, helicopter money, you could argue. Um, uh, let's say the third COVID stimulus bill maybe put a little too much money out in consumers' pocket to go blow. And so money supply increased demand and supply did not keep up. And so you got some inflation there. But when people talk about these government excesses, the real long-term impact is far more deflationary. The Fed exacerbates boom-bust cycles. They malinvest capital. They um, misallocate resources. They keep companies that should be going away alive with artificially low interest rates. And when companies stay alive that shouldn't be, that means there's a new company somewhere not being born that should be. And, and that zombieism was a real big problem in Japan. All of these things are inherently deflationary. And so despite cyclical inflation, um, most of which is very supply side oriented like we have now, um, inadequate production of oil and gas. By the way, our daily consumption of oil is not up one barrel right now from 2019, yet prices have doubled. That's a supply side problem. So we need greater supply side solutions. And David, I'm going to turn your attention to something that Ron and I are also passionate about, a little bit out of left field, but I'm sure you can handle that. And that is Ron and I are big into the subscription economy. We do a lot of shows on that with regard to subscription uh, services and stuff. What, what are your th thoughts on the subscription economy? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if I know exactly what the subscription economy is. If you mean the, mo the business model um, yes. of growing digital subscriptions and recurring revenues and so forth, uh, I'm a huge fan. Um, but kind of um, creating a, a whole economic paradigm out of a, uh, that consumer preference is is kind of new to me so i guess you may have to tell me what you mean a little more yeah that, that, that's you're, you've got it right and the change in 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 the way that that uh people capture value through subscription pricing and the focus more on the relationship we've only got about one minute left so i do a little bit of an unfair question so well let me just put it there let me answer this way if that's what you're saying um i believe in it so much that i built my entire 3.7 billion dollar business around that exact model very relational <laughs> recurring revenue every day we wake up and have to earn your continued business so subscription meaning recurring versus transactional my short answer to your question is I'm completely on board and I'm practicing what I preach. <laughs> Absolutely outstanding. Thank you so much, David. This has been great having you on. Really appreciate it. Ron, I guess I'll see you in 167 hours. Sounds good, Ed.
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.